Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Alright everyone, let's go. Hi, my name is Hannah Warso, and as part of the 2020 Answer Executive, one of the main projects we wanted to achieve last year was to support students with fieldwork. To do so, we decided to collaborate with The Familiar Strange. This recording is based on some discussions with a PhD colleague of mine at UQ, Romy Listo, now Dr Romy Listo as we each sought to find ways of dealing with the aftermath of what Romy calls distressing fieldwork. So often fieldwork becomes glorified war stories, as told by more senior anthropologists, a rite of passage into growing up anthropology. We both felt that the vulnerabilities and issues that can arise in fieldwork are rarely addressed as they affect the researcher and research practice. And yet these subjectivities do affect our work and our capacity to complete our analysis and writing. In a bid to break the climate of academic imperviousness to vicarious trauma experienced by researchers, we each sought to find ways of supporting each other as we tried to finish our PhDs. Romy and I set about having a series of online conversations via email using an intentional format of collective narrative practice. This is the name of the method. To help us each make sense of the fieldwork we had each been trying to process. Romy had been working in the townships of urban South Africa using collective narrative practice to interview women on energy issues for her thesis on the role of energy in women's collective organising and empowerment in South Africa. I was analysing Australian policy affecting asylum-seeking people who had arrived in Australia by boat, who were going through a truncated refugee recognition process known as Fast Track. This processing had key elements of the UN Refugee Convention excised from it and was very distressing to witness as I volunteered as a paralegal at a local asylum-seeker hub in a church helping people through the process. Though these fieldwork sites at first seemed disparate, mine at home and Romy working far away in South Africa with women marginalised after generations of colonisation and apartheid, what we each found in talking to each other was a feeling that we were able to better navigate the distress that we each felt during and after undertaking our fieldwork. This was a form of validation and listening Anthropologist Michael Jackson says such listening and talking or storying is a basic human need so that our stories do not become, as he calls it, salted away in subjectivity and silence, often becoming marks of insignificance and shame. We both initially felt like we had each failed field work because we were each struggling with it and there was nowhere for us to validate our experiences. So in storying with each other, we found a way to share our experiences, listen to each other, and in that process be there for each other. 
This podcast models the process that we used and is based on a workshop that we held at the 2019 AAS conference in Canberra at ANU. It's made with the intent that you may use some elements of it to help you as you try to make sense of your research. We hope you enjoy listening to it and we also recommend looking up some readings which will be on the Familiar Strange website and to check out the Dulwich Centre website, dulwichcentre.com.au to find out more. Thanks for listening. Hello everyone and welcome to The Familiar Strange, in a special bonus episode made in conjunction with ANSA. Now we're brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex. I'm here with Hannah Warso, PhD candidate at the University of Queensland and president of the Australian Network of Student Anthropologists, ANSA. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Alex. How are you? Not bad. And I'm speaking to you from Mianjin, also known as Brisbane, and I'm here on unceded Yuggera land. And I'd also like to introduce Romy Listo, recent PhD graduate from the University of Queensland. Hi, Romy. Hi, everyone. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that we're on Aboriginal land today and I'm on the land of the Ngunnawal and Gambri peoples as well. Awesome. Now, this is a very special bonus episode. So today's answer, AnthroLab, is about fieldwork trauma and methods of dealing with it. Now, guys, how did that come about? Romy and I were both doing tutoring training and we caught up for coffee. We both saw each other in the tutoring training and Romy had just come back from South Africa and I was asking her how she was. And we just started chatting over a coffee, basically, didn't we, Romy? I think that's how it started. Romy was talking about how traumatic her field field work had been. She'd been working in South African townships and I was listening to her talking about it and it sounded really tough. And then I was sharing how I felt a bit guilty because I was also finding my field work tough, but I was living in Brisbane and I thought, how can I be having a hard time doing field work when I go home to my family every day? And I was trying to explain to Romy some of the issues that I was dealing with in my fieldwork because I'm working with people as a volunteer paralegal going through the Australian new Australian fast track process for refugee recognition, which has much of the UN Refugee Convention excised from it. And it's quite distressing. So we just started chatting about it. And then, Romy, do you want to take it up from there? Yeah, so I guess uh, there were elements in my fieldwork that were quite distressing at the point that we caught up. I'd probably been home for, I think, about six months. And I'd found that in trying to analyse my data and start working through the writing process that I was really struggling and getting a bit blocked by um, some of the more distressing things that had happened um, while I was in the field. So I'd started trying to work on a paper um, as a way to try to, I guess, process that and, and work through it a little bit. Um, and I think that I mentioned this to Hannah when we, we were having coffee. Um, and we had kind of, we ended up deciding that instead of trying to, you know, work through these things separately, that maybe we should try to do that together instead. Um, 
and then it went from there. Nice. So as I understand, you guys started exchanging emails and then worked on a technique together. What is this technique, can I ask? So in my own field work, I'd been using a number of different what's called community narrative practice uh, methods, uh, and they're effectively ways of talking to people about subjects that are distressing or difficult, but that be quite empowering to the person or intended to be therapeutic or empowering to the to the person that you're discussing with. So they kind of turn on this idea of a double story and that in every story of suffering, there's also one of survival and resilience. Um, so I guess that's a bit about community narrative practice and it, it grew out of um, family therapy uh, from, I guess, the psychological field. And so I'd been using some of these techniques in my field work and and thought that maybe some of the other things that I was aware of from that area of practice might be useful for what Hunter and I were trying to do. And so we ended up discussing the idea of using an outsider witnessing technique. And so outsider witnessing is a process of telling and retelling a story, um, and it typically occurs in dialogue, so between two people. So one person will tell their story, and the role of the outsider witness is to just listen attentively and then to respond to the story. Um, and and so when you say respond to the story, just yes, aha, uh-huh, that's interesting. What sort of things are we talking about? So there's actually quite a few defined steps um, in what responding to a story means in the, in the context of outsider witnessing. Um, so the first step is about identifying, I guess, the whole thing... The thing as a whole is uh, responding not from so much a position of expertise or guidance or trying to offer a therapy, I suppose, to the, to the person telling their story, but more about being reflective and affirmative um, and, and, and aiming toward how that person's story has impacted the listener's or the witness's life. So there are kind of a, a number, there are four steps that are, that are recommended as part of the process. The first is identifying expression. So that's really trying to listen for and then repeat back specific words or expressions that people use that seem to be significant to them. The second part of a response is describing the image. uh, And that's about, I guess, again, capturing and revoking the images of people's lives and their identities that are in their words and the kind of the values and beliefs that they're communicating through those. The third part is about embodying responses, so acknowledging how these expressions and images resonate with your own life and experiences and why, um, but not stopping there because the fourth step is then acknowledging transport. And that's about communicating that how you've been moved or changed by hearing this story um, and and where it's impacted you and how. Uh, so I guess it's kind of a, a listening ceremony in a way that is about validating and acknowledging the, the person's story and about giving it a worth and recognising a positive impact that it can have. Um, and that's been recognised by scholars within the community narrative practice uh, field as, as having, I guess, some sort of therapeutic impact. Awesome. That's a really interesting technique. I can imagine some of our listeners might have some questions about how this kind of, what this actually looks like in practice. Would either of you have some examples of what stepping through this process might look like? 
And I think for a bit of context, the way that we, we used the method was um, we basically just had an email conversation or an email dialogue. So we mapped out a series of questions that we wanted to ask one another um, about what our experiences in the field were like, um, and then just took it in turns asking and responding over email. Um, so we had, I guess, a written conversation. Brilliant. If you don't mind me asking, what were some of these questions? Great question. Um, I will see if I can <laughs> track those down. Yeah, so I've actually got them in front of me, so that's very convenient. So we asked each other to just generally um, tell me about your field work um, and what were the, the struggles that you faced and how did you survive or cope with the situation? Um, and so I guess that was about getting a general context for what happened in the field and then what the difficult parts were, as well as that second story part about how we each tried to show resilience. Um, and then because we're interested in structural change and being able to, I guess, move the conversation around distressing fieldwork towards something that's actually practical for um, new PhD students and people who are experiencing these kind of challenges in the field. We also asked each other about what would you have done differently if you could do with your fieldwork again and what do you wish you would have known if you were starting your fieldwork now um, and what would you do or say for someone else who's in your position. Kind of, I guess, sounds- pull out some recommendations. Yeah, no, that sounds brilliant. Have you started to do this with new PhD students yet or not? Oh, well, we've changed Well, <laughs> we tried to start uh, peer, peer um, fieldwork mentoring um, and then COVID hit and we had one person mm. send in an email saying she'd like to be part of it. So it hasn't been um, what we'd hoped to do this year. I really wanted to get peer mentoring up and running as part of ANSWER. But, you know, 2020, hey, what can we do? So Yeah, it's a bit like that. I think we've also seen a little bit more interest in this at like UQ at a school level anyway. There was a forum, I think, at the beginning yeah. of this year, Hannah, on um, the subject. And it was really good. It was really well done. Romy gave me permission to uh, read out her piece. Or did you join by Zoom? I can't remember. I didn't. No. And, um, yeah, it was fantastic because the uh, anthropologists on staff facilitated a discussion amongst peers about their field work. It was more of a sharing. It didn't go into the the um, narrative practice that Romy's explained to you now, but it was very effective in helping and supporting people who are about to go into field work or who had just come back from field work. Um, it, it was a really lovely sharing and yarning space, if, if nothing more than that. But I the, the value of um, the... The technique that Romy's ex- explained to you is that you feel very supported by one person because you are being listened and someone's bearing witness to your experience and then e- acknowledging things that perhaps you haven't been ready to acknowledge about positive things that may c- have come out of it, having acknowledged the difficulties. And I think that's the, um, the embodying responses and acknowledging transport helps you to shift a little bit 
on from um, simply just uh, the sharing, which is good, but I think there's there's a, a definite shift in um, the narrative therapy approach that I, I really found helpful for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that uh, using these kind of things was really very helpful for me and being able to process some of the distress that I felt while I was in the field. And then I think enabled me to be able to re-engage with my data and my fieldwork in a way that was a little bit less, I guess, intertwined with some of these experiences that allowed me to separate it out a bit more and work out what was useful as part of the data and what was um, something within myself. Yeah, your really. cats, your cats wanting you to embody a response and acknowledge transport, <laughs> maybe to the food, food bowl. <laughs> Often she's very, very talkative. Right. You can have a four-way conversation instead of three-way. <laughs> I think actually, Romy, I've really missed um, having those conversations. I've found that this writing up stage has been really difficult because I've continued to have relationships with people where they're going through really traumatic things and try to find help for people when I'm meant to be writing up and saying to my supervisors, this really awful thing's happened and I don't know what to do. I've put people in touch with other people, but I'm so distressed, I can't even think today. It, 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 it is tough and you really need that capacity to be able to share with someone when you are going through those things. It, it really does help. And I think what it speaks to is that there's a missing piece in the way that we do research at the moment that when we're looking at some of these subjects that you know were so important to do research on because they highlight um, a really important social justice issue or you know this kind of these really big issues uh, that we those are actually difficult that's difficult work to do and there needs to be support um, and it, when that's not there, it makes the process much harder. But we need to actually have built into our faculties and schools actual support systems that enable people to do this kind of work. I agree. I really agree. And I think that there's a, a fear in academia of being able to express vulnerability and difficulty and that we should always abstract things, its effect or its a subjectivity. It's not really something that it's, is explored more than that unless it's from an informant or it becomes, you know, your, your Blackberry Winter, your Margaret Mead's secret diary or your Malinowski's secret diary, rather than being part of the process that helps you to digest and understand the fieldwork and the ethnography that you're doing and then you're actually part of it and you're affected by it. And I think what I noticed when I came home as well, and I tried to start to talk to people about some of the things that I'd experienced, uh, was that everyone had some kind of um, war story, so to speak. I don't particularly like that term, but everyone had stories from the field that they would often shrug off and minimise, but you could tell in the way that they brought it up that, you know, that it had been a very distressing experience that Perhaps that affected how they'd been able to do their work, but it's there wasn't the space or the words to be able to talk about that in the context of research work. Sorry, do you want to add something else, Hannah? 
Oh, I was just going to say, I think academia needs to acknowledge its vulnerability at a number of different levels, but certainly at a fieldwork level and being affected by fieldwork. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so guys, you've talked about this a lot, but you said you'd actually model this for us. I think, Romy, you're going to step Hannah through this process. Is that correct? So what we were thinking was that we could model some of this process and I can ask Hannah about some of her experiences with her fieldwork at the moment, um, and then I will respond to her using the four steps of the outsider witnessing process. That sounds brilliant and really useful. Great. So I'll kick us off then. Um Hannah, can you tell me a little bit about your fieldwork? So my fieldwork has been documenting the fast track process that was put into law in 2014, December 2014, by the Abbott Liberal Government, and it excised much of the UN Refugee Convention from it. So my job has been, as a field worker, is working as a voluntary paralegal, going with people through this process, helping them fill out forms, going to their interviews with the Department of Home Affairs and then following up with that if they get a rejection or seeing what happens to them once they become a refugee or left as an asylum seeker on a bridging visa. And regardless of whether you're recognised as a refugee or not, you're left on a temporary visa. So if you're recognised as a refugee, you get five years on a what's called a CHEV or three years on a TPV or if you're not recognised as a refugee, you stay on monthly bridging visas. So what happens to people is their, their refugee-ness stays with them and it's not resolved. And there's a lot of research that's shown in the early 2000s, both health academics and social science academics, that this is very harmful for people. So I thought, well, on the back of that, we haven't documented what's happened in this longer-term process. So people have been on temporary visas for eight, nine, ten years now. So let's see what this is like for people, what their lived experience is. And so it's a documenting of the speaking back to policy. That's it in a nutshell. So how has it been during COVID? Well, the distressing thing during COVID is that when the government introduced those fantastic measures of JobKeeper and JobSeeker, they weren't eligible for everybody. So we know, and it's well documented in the media, um, that international students weren't included. And we've seen um, footage of universities having to support those students with food pa packages and things like that. But another cohort of people has been travellers and then asylum seekers and refugees who've been on temporary visas for eight, nine, ten years now. So this means those um, people often work in marginalised jobs, um, uh, doing casual work, and they've been laid off from their hospitality jobs and, and other such areas of work and can't feed themselves. Um, people are living in uh, one-bedroom houses with three generations because they couldn't afford their previous three-bedroom house. Um, they're sleeping in cars, all sorts of things. It's really distressing. So um, I've had some friends contact me in these situations and ask me if I can help or do I know anywhere where they can go and get help. So 
I'm, I'm not a social worker, I'm an, an anthropologist, so I've just tried to get people help in the right direction. But it's been really distressing. And so what I'm hearing in that is, you know, a, a really complex issue that you're you're engaging in. Sorry. That's okay. Um, actually, I think it might be helpful if you tell me a little bit more about what your experience has been this year and what some of the struggles that you're facing are. Well, previously when we've talked, Romy, it was the distress of going through the fast track process, filling out a 42-page form all in English, not having enough translators, going to these hideous interviews where people's trauma and torture has been minimised and trivialised in the interview and then seeing them rejected as refugees when you know that if we hadn't excised the UN Refugee Convention from those processes, they would have, in most cases, all boat arrivals, about 90%, um, well, not all, but 90% of boat arrivals were usually recognised as refugees. So. Uh, that's down to 70% now, and for all Sri Lankan Tamils, it's 94% rejection rate. So that was really, really distressing. What I didn't expect and what's taken its toll now is the COVID stuff. I thought that we were sort of dealt, we, we've dealt with this, okay, we've got the same policies in place, we didn't have a change of government, but um, we had enough support for people. But it, it shows how much the agencies that are working are at breaking point because it took COVID and then there was a 300% demand, jump in demand for food, housing, everything. And so, um, for example, some friends on community detention got taken off in the middle of COVID and told they had to go and find jobs. Now, they haven't worked for eight years. Um, they've had terrible um, trauma happen to them in Nauru, where they were um, imprisoned for four years. Um, they've been in detention here for a number of years, and then they've been living in the community so ill from their detention, not from their original trauma in their country of origin, that they've had to go and see psychiatrists and psychologists, and they couldn't even afford their medications. So. Um, once they'd been taken off the community detention, they were just told they had to find work. Now, what's the unemployment rate <laughs> with COVID? Um, so people are swinging into action, but it's civil society trying to help people and overstretched agencies um, trying to help people. And it's just very, very distressing. So you get a call like that and you think, today I'm going to get my conceptual chapter finished. And then you get a call like that in the morning and you just can't concentrate. Thanks for sharing that, Hannah. It sounds like it sounds like an incredibly difficult experience to be trying to, to process um, amid a year that's already been so difficult for many of us on a personal level. And I can really hear in your words how much COVID is taking its toll on people that you care a lot about. And I'm hearing you talk about a situation that's at breaking point. Um, and I can hear the injustice of what the people, your friends, your friends that you've made through your research are experiencing. And I guess the sheer absurdity of a situation that allows that to happen to those people. Um, and I can hear that that's, that's very present and consuming for you at the moment. And, 
I can absolutely understand how you would get a call about something like that and find it impossible to then go and write something like a conceptual chapter for a PhD that seems theoretical, perhaps removed from this really difficult reality that people are facing. And I, I'm hearing how overstretched you're feeling by trying to respond to this reality as well as try to do the work that, that means that you're engaging in that process as well. Um, and I think I, I really resonate with that, that feeling of being overstretched and, and wanting to make sure that as many people, that, that people are, are looked after in this crisis that we're facing and caring very deeply about that. And I think that I can also hear this willingness to keep fighting in your words. Um, and I find that very inspiring. Like I can hear how present this all is for you and how important it is what it all is. And I think that that speaks to a strength and a, and a pursuit of justice. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Romy. And thank you for listening and acknowledging um, the situation. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing I can do, really. I can just recommend help and be a friend. That's all I can do, and that's really frustrating. And just to pause it there for a second, at which steps have we just, in what we've just heard, what steps have we just listened to? Was that the full four steps? or? Um, so I tried to... to each of them briefly. Um, so while Hannah was talking, I was actually writing down some of the expressions that she used to try to be able to repeat those back mm -hmm. to you. Um, and by, I guess, trying to describe some of the picture of what she was experiencing as well. Um, and this was obviously very brief. I'll try to do that in a more fuller way, but and then also trying to uh, look at step number three, which is about embodying the responses. So acknowledging where I felt you know, that experience of resonance about being overstretched and, and feeling, yeah, that, that one definitely I have experienced myself this year, perhaps in a, in a different way and in a different context. Um, and then the last part about acknowledging transport or acknowledging um, what, how I've been moved by witnessing the experience and where I think that um, Hannah's work has an impact is a, in acknowledging her fighting spirit and her, her willingness to keep trying to do the difficult thing. Um, yeah, brilliant. And like, so Hannah, this isn't the first time you've done this, obviously. No, how, no. How is it? First time I've debriefed on this one. <laughs> Sorry to do that to you, Romy. <laughs> No, it's fine. It's just a bit of pra public practice for everyone. So then, what is the experience like of hearing those words focused, hearing your own words focused back at you? I guess um, for me, it's affirming. And I find the difference between that and just generally sharing, as we we're talking about doing at UQ um, earlier this year, is that uh, Romy shared her experiences and used my words back with me um, and acknowledged some things. I don't think I have a fighting spirit. I feel like I've, everything's gone from me. 
but um, it was nice to hear that she saw some things in myself that I didn't see because I'm really struggling with writing at the moment um, and trying to get my PhD done and feeling like I'm not supporting people who need support. So it's just trying to keep things in perspective. I mean, it's, it just is a, it's just a gentle balm <laughs> until I get the bloody thing finished. <laughs> and then I can focus more on, on um, yeah, supporting other people For who, sure. who might need some support. And then we've sort of discussed this at the start of the program, but now that we've sort of heard the process in action, how do you guys see this being helpful for students? Do you want to go first, Romy? Uh, sure. So I think we saw this as being a way to be able to facilitate quite intentional conversations. Um, and I think that is one of the differences between a method like this and just having a sharing conversation. I think the way I saw it being helpful is because it is a way to kind of prompt and lead someone through a process of, I guess, being able to, to process their experiences and be able to get some sort of form of healing from that, whether it be a small, you know, a balm or perhaps if over a longer process of being a bit more significant and in being able to find a way to process those, those feelings and emotions that can make doing the actual data analysis harder and, and distressing itself um, supports students to be able to, to finish their to finish their work and go on to be you know well resourced researchers. I just wanted to add um, I think Romy's right it has to happen over time and the benefit for Romy and I doing this was doing it through email was also very moving and it gave you time to process and think and respond. So Romy initiated each conversation because she'd been doing it herself in her fieldwork. So she'd say, what were your experiences of fieldwork? I think that was the first question you asked, wasn't it? And we asked that of each other. And then we would respond and say, wow, that sounds really blah, blah, blah. And we'd, we'd acknowledge what the person was experiencing. And then we would look for the resilience and the positivities in that. I mean, you, you can't turn everything into brilliance, but you can acknowledge that they've been working hard to, to come through this and you can see that they're going to get through the other side. So it's really just, as Romy said, it, it's, it's a very intentional conversation. And it feels a little bit funny to start with, doing it so formally, but it actually does work. And it was really interesting when we did the, the workshop in Canberra last year, wasn't it, Romy? Because we got people to engage in this. And people said that they'd shared things from their fieldwork that they'd never shared before with anyone. Just doing this to and fro. How, what were your experiences in fieldwork? How did that make you feel? I'm hearing this, what do you think you could have done better? I'm hearing this. So it's 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 letting them speak, feeding it back, and then adding value in recognising that second story. As Romy talked about, it's a, a, a second story. I'm assuming all with the proviso that if somebody needs professional help, by all means. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Did you want to add anything to that, Romy? Have I... Simpl oversimplified it or 
No, I don't think so. And I think the place that we saw this work fitting was in between, you know, professional help and acknowledging that not everyone will always have the resourcing to be able to access that and certainly that that might not be enabled by the university. So it was kind of trying to come up with more of a community structure to surprise, like to provide some sort of, it's not, it's obviously not crisis support, but some sort of opportunity for, for processing these kind of feelings and then uh, also building the capacity of all of us as you know researchers of a social science discipline maybe to to be able to have these kind of conversations for sure and I think that's a really good point that like you don't have to be in crisis um, to be quite distressed no. as you've said yourself no. I mean my fieldwork was also really cruisy and it was tough but it would be hard to describe why it was mm. tough there, there are other less obvious reasons as to why these things can be mm. difficult and I mean, we're anthropologists. We look at social networks and into, you know, human interaction. Why is it that we're so slow to do those things for ourselves? Why is it that we don't acknowledge the need for human interaction in ourselves as academics? And um, I, I guess for me, that's the value. And I'm always come back to Michael Jackson's statement that he said about if you don't share stories they become salted away into insignificance I think that that I can't remember the exact words but I I really love that that where where things aren't shared they just get pickled and sort of ferment away and um, you you don't get any significance or recognition from that so it's not about being weak or being a wuss or oversharing. It's about just saying, this is what's happened. You know, what can I do? I think I think one of the challenges of, of field work often in the way that it's structured is because the researcher is of a position of greater privilege than the people they're often working with in their field work, in their research, there can be this element of sort of survivor guilt and the knowledge that, you know, you're going home to a place of safety and why do you feel so affected by the things that you've maybe seen as part of your fieldwork or that you've heard? And I think what a process like this helps with is acknowledge those feelings and the distress that might be caused in kind of its own container so that it doesn't inadvertently become the centre of the research itself. Mm. It kind of separates the processes out as well. Nice. And that actually leads to... Uh, another question I wanted to ask. I do have to ask the anthropological question. Romy used this as an actual technique of data gathering in the field. What made you turn to it and what do you think it offered you that other techniques wouldn't have? Um, so I didn't use the specific technique of outsider witnessing. Oh, I used um, similar techniques from community narrative practice, okay, but they probably have similar principles behind and the reason that I chose to do that is because my PhD is about gender inequality and about women's empowerment as well. And I was interested in the process by which people felt themselves to be empowered. And within the kind of the study of empowerment, we would generally acknowledge empowerment to be a process of moving from a position of disempowerment. So that necessarily involves a conversation about both suffering as well as experiences of surviving and resisting and and feeling more empowered. Um, And so acknowledging that I was interested in that entire spectrum, I felt that these techniques that focus on, I guess, that duality of suffering and resilience was 
a useful way to be able to, to safely have those conversations. For sure. And Hannah, you used similar techniques as well in your fieldwork, no? What have you found there? No, I didn't end... Not at all? Okay. I didn't end up using them because <laughs> it was so hard to get asylum-seeking people and refugee people to talk because they've all signed behaviour contracts that threaten them with detention and refoulement if they speak out. And people were too frightened and untrusting to be able to share their stories. So what I ended up doing was slightly different, where people who were friends might tell me an incident and I'd say, would you mind me using that? And they'd say, yes, but I don't want to write it. So I would write it, send it to them, they would read it, correct some things, and then send it back. So it was a very negotiated process. I did one situation um, where I did narrative therapy practice questioning, and um, it wasn't ideal for the situation because I felt that there was too much of a power imbalance, and I was friends with this woman's migration agent, and it ended up being where she kept talking about how grateful she was to the migration agent. And I felt, I just felt sad that there was such a power imbalance. I mean, it was still a great interview, but it it didn't work in the way that I had anticipated and as Romy's described. And that's something else to keep in mind when using these techniques is that they're not, mm. not, sorry, something else to keep in mind when using these techniques because it's not that they will work in every situation. No. This is just an extra tool in the tool. Well, I wanted to thank Romy for coming in and talking with us and thank her for her time because she's finished her thesis now. Congratulations. Thank you. She's now Dr. Romy Listo. And I wanted to thank you, Alex, and Familiar Strange for um, your support with the Answer Anthro Labs. And I hope that this conversation that we've had is of use to other people. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you both for appearing on the show, Hannah for organising, Romy for sharing this with us. I think it's a really important topic and people are going to get some real benefit out of it. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange, as well as the Australian Network of Student Anthropologists. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Catto and Matthew Fogg. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange, not the strange familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. If you'd like to get in touch with Answer, you can check out their website at www.ansa-aas.net. They have some regular competitions and a blog. Check them out. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog, or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts in this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.